Hello, and welcome to St. Sinners and Salvageville, a look inside America's electoral system. I'm your host, Ben Ginsberg, and each week through the end of the 2022 election season, we'll be examining the issues surrounding the casting, counting, and certification of this year's voting. This week, we welcome Mindy Flynn, who's done a fascinating and cutting-edge data and survey work to gain insight into the electorate, particularly those who doubt the veracity of our election. Mindy is the CEO of Citizen Data, has led large-scale campaigns and initiatives to reduce polarization and improve elections throughout a 20-year career within Congress, presidential campaigns, and major tech companies. Citizen Data is the entity she's using to do this research. And it is a mixture of engineering data and marketing analytics solutions that, uh, Mindy, I believe you want to help bridge divides, counter disinformation, and protect democracy. She's also a wily political operative, having been on the George W. Bush and Mitt Romney presidential campaigns, led pioneering civic engagement programs at Google, Pew, Twitter, and Change.org, and in fact, went from operative to candidate in 2016, running as the vice presidential candidate on independent Evan McMullen's ticket. Mindy, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Well, it's great to be here. Um, so you recently released a report called American Democracy Roadmap, Playbook for Trusted Elections. It really is excellent research with the stated goal of studying the erosion of trust in our election system. Um, and your aim, as you stated, was to provide a greater understanding of the 30% of people who, uh, who don't have faith in our election. So tell us what, um, what prompted you to undertake this research. What had you seen in your career that sort of pointed you towards this moment? Yeah, well, thank you. So, you know, essentially, I mean, we at a high level in doing this work, we we want to tackle the crisis of confidence in in US elections. I mean, there's there's no doubt and uh it's not you know, not a surprise, it's well known that we are a polarized nation, um polarized by party, by ideology, you know, education and otherwise. Um and that's been true for you know, for a long time, but it's really been accelerating over the last 20 years. Um, but we are in a new, we are in new territory when it comes to distrust in institutions, distrust in democracy, distrust in, in elites, um, and, and polarization that, you know, we're op operating in kind of two different realities, um, or at least that's conventional wisdom. What we know, though, is that it's a bit of an oversimplification that, you know, while, you know, Big media, for example, um, likes to put everyone into two different boxes of a red or blue Republican Democrat that um, there really is a, a more nuanced spectrum. Um, and it's important to understand that. Um, and even, you know, we talk about the 30% who think the 2020 election was illegitimate. Um, even that group isn't monolithic. Um, they believe that with different levels of intensity. They believe that for um, a lot of the same reasons, but also sometimes for different reasons. And, you know, some of them are, are more movable, perhaps, on those views than others. At least that was our hypothesis and what we believed. And so when we put together this playbook, it was really based on, you know, just a hardened belief that we can't accept 
the fact that, you know, just as a matter of fact, that 30% of our country um, is going to distrust elections, there's a lot of downstream effects of that, political violence and the like. Um, we can't really accept that. And so um, we need to do something about it. And, and we need to unpack that group and unpack the entire electorate and really start to understand, um, you know, where are the common uh, beliefs, where are uh, where do we uh, diverge, and where, and most importantly, are the openings and the, the tools and the interventions that will help to bring uh, bring more trust to, to our elections. Um, before we get into the specifics, can you recount some of your methodology and the sample that you took to do this? Because you talked, I mean, this was really a in-depth dive, and I think it's important to understand just how in-depth it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, you know, when we do our analysis, we start with a base of over 200 million voters that, you know, we have access to their full vote history um, and, and deep dem demographic information and even, you know, media, media sources, consumer information. So that is what we're using. Um, and we certainly have done, you know, some measures since 2020, but for this specific playbook, it, uh, it took from insights from research going back to April of 2022 through August, um, and a total of over 18,000 interviews, um, as well as a mix of qualitative studies. So um, surveys that were you know, 4,000 voter registered voters nationwide, for example, or 2,000 at a time, 3,000 at a time. We did, we did a number of them um, to take measures at various points, um, as well as, as I mentioned, qualitative. So you know, 90-minute focus groups. Um, some of this was national. We also went deep into a couple of states, Arizona and Georgia, um, just seeing them as two of the states that are kind of ground zero um, for, you know, potential election problems. So to start off, um, did you see a great difference in the responses you got from the people in Arizona and Georgia than the sort of nationwide attitudes on the subject? So we we did. Um, you know, there's certainly some widespread um, you know, nationalized trends. But one thing we found in Arizona and Georgia is that these topics, so the uh, election trust or a, a belief that there might be election fraud, um, the interest is so much higher there than the baseline nationally. You know, this really was a, you know, we like to think that for in the past, say, you know, prior to 2020, except around, you know, really election time, there isn't much interest. There certainly wasn't a lot of widespread interest in election administration and how our elections are run and um, how the votes are counted and whether or not there's fraud. That is a much more salient conversation nationally. And that's even more so in Arizona and Georgia, um, you know, where you have Republicans in those states in particular, a, a strong plurality placing concerns about election integrity and election trust as one of their top three issues that they think is of greatest concern in the country today. And that's very much a new trend. I mean, in the presidential campaigns you and I worked together on, that was not uh, really a feature of the electorate that we had to deal with. Um, so I think the answer to this is obvious, but what caused that change in attitude amongst amongst voters? 
Yeah, it's such a good question. And, and you're right, like this is new. Um, you know, sometimes people who like to tamp down alarm about the moment we're in will say, oh, well, like, you know, they'll point to the data that shows for the last 20 years, at least you have a third of the losing party in a presidential election that harbors doubts or, or distrust about the outcome because they're not happy about the outcome. Um, and and that that's true. But what we're seeing now is a much larger segment uh, of the public, um, in particular on the Republican side, um, that is, yes, attributable to the outcome, but what it's also attributed to is the fact that their leader, uh, the former president of the United States, waged a very deliberate campaign to harbor distrust and doubt in the legitimacy and the outcome of the 2020 election. Um, and that was un unprecedented. Um, and then obviously there's an infrastructure kind of around him and, and underneath him who's then perpetuated that that lie, that falsehood. Um, and so that is, that is what's new. Um, and I should also just note that we see because of that, um, or, large, or somewhat because of that, and also just because of increased polarization and just such distrust and, and negative partisanship that exists on, on, on really both sides, um, we start to see some of that distrust, you know, seeping into uh, the left as, as well. Um, and, and so that is, we're just in, in new territory in terms of um, the, the fever pitch of the distrust and concern about um, whether we will have you know, free and fair elections that, that voters can trust. That's so true, um, really about both sides. And I was struck by one of the findings in your report, which is the partisan infrastructure best positioned to mobilize voters have little incentive to fix it. How come? Yeah, well, because, you know, what parties are really about is, in its simplest form is, is winning elections. So they're about getting more power. And in order to get more power, they, they have to, to win elections. Um, and you know that is that is their mission, kind of number one, and and so when it comes to winning elections, the way to do that formula um, very much depends today on driving kind of fear, you know, raising alarm about threats from the other side. Um, you need to prove more so, less so that you know you have the the, the formula that's going to move the country forward, and more so that the other side is going to destroy the the country, and so. Um, we have kind of two forces that are a bit in tension or conflict at play when it comes to building trust in elections. You have, you know, uh, potentially, and I mean, I, I think there's more awareness now on the parties where some of this has been mediated, but, um, you know, you could have a Democratic Party that is really incentivized to raise the alarm, um, perhaps in hyperbolic ways, about voter suppression or about threats to election or election subversion, which may be real things, but they're really incentivized to drive the maximum fear about that and drive um, and assign maximum blame to the other side in order to win votes. Um, and so by doing that, they perhaps are actually breeding this further distrust in the process. I think there's a real challenge here in how do you sufficiently raise the alarm about threats to elections, which I strongly believe exist and need to be raised, but how do you do that in a way that isn't further contributing to the distrust um, and in a way that is you know, sober-minded, clear-eyed, truthful, um, and I don't, parties aren't really the ones that you can fully trust 
to do that. It doesn't mean there aren't any party actors that do it. It just that means that party, the party apparatus is at the end of the day going to be focused on winning elections and they're going to use whatever you know, medium message and otherwise to win elections, not necessarily to sustain the grand, you know, experiment and um set of institutions that are critical for a, a, for critical for a healthy democracy. Yes, it has not been helpful that the get out the vote models of the Republican Party is talking about fraud that's not always been proven. And the Democratic get out the vote model is based on yelling about suppression uh, that is sometimes a little bit overblown. That's exactly right. It, it doesn't mean you know, what parties are going to do is take something where there there might be some truth, and we can sit here today and say there's more truth on one side or the other, which I actually do believe. But you know, they're focused on how do we you know blow up an, a narrative, um, and, and aren't really thinking too much about the backlash effects. Yeah, and the numbers you found in this survey are stark. Seventy-six percent have some doubts about whether they'll be able to trust the legitimacy of the 2024 election. 46% voice at least some dissatisfaction with our democracy and the way it works for them. And 40% of Republicans say illegitimate elections and voter fraud are among the, the top threats. But what does the country need to do to reduce this polarization and really rebuild the trust that you're talking about? Yeah. So, um, you know, first of all, I would just say that when it comes to you know the institution of, of our elections, um, for the most part, um, they are very well run. They are trustworthy. You have good actors who are in the positions of uh, administering them and, and running them, and you have poll workers who are just regular folks who who show up and, and want to do a, a public duty. Um, and you know that truth um, has really been undermined with. And the campaign that was waged post 2020 to cast out on the 2020 elections, um, you know, conspiracies are rampant, and um, you know, election officials and poll workers and, and such are under attack. And so, so that is um, that's sort of the immediate crisis. And you know, we provide in this playbook, we seek to provide um, some of the tools to help counteract that, which is you know, election officials. Kind of up and down are suddenly in a position where, as opposed to just having to do their core job, which is run a good election, as well as do some basic communication, they actually need to be prepared to be counter disinformation, you know, communicators and experts. They need to mitigate misinformation. They need to be aware of what's coming. Um, they need to be armed with effective. Um, language and messaging uh, and tools to counter it. And so that is, you know, part of what we we seek to do here. Um, and what that means is, you know, more kind of neutral language that isn't going to further provoke either side. It also means debunking. You know, we've done a fair amount of um, rigorous testing of the types of communication that go out by election officials to see what works best. And found, particularly in these states like Arizona and Georgia, where this concern about election integrity is so salient, that debunking is really critical. You know, getting the facts out really does matter. Of course, it matters who those facts are coming out from. You know, if it's someone who's seen as a political actor, it's not going to be trusted, um, certainly not going to be trusted by their opposite party. But if it is someone who has some more 
nonpartisan or institutional cred, um, then it is going to be more trusted. And, and you have to get the facts out. You know, more transparency about how our elections are run um, for people to understand and see in real time what's happening. There are, already is a good amount of transparency, but we need more of that. Um, obviously, getting um, you know people that are of uh, with the right intentions, that are good faith actors, continuing to get them into positions of uh, that are key for election administration. Obviously, also in state legislatures um, because that comes into play. Um, in terms of certifying uh, election results and making decisions about how our elections are run um, and making sure we have enough people to work, you know, our elections. Um, you know, our elections are for the most part trustworthy, but as you know well, um, there's always some, you know, kinds of, you know, issues relative to the number of places, um, you know, the number of polling places, the number of jurisdictions. There's always just a small, you know, number of problems, but there, there can be problems. And so one thing that, you know, we've found is you don't want to be too grandiose and you sound really out of touch if you kind of say our elections are impenetrable, they're locked tight. You know, I mean, it's not really true, right? I mean, we spent a lot of time after the 2016 election talking about um, foreign interference and the cybersecurity issues. So I think you you have to sort of be willing to, to call out where there might be some minor issues here and there that are fixed and fixable and talk about how they're fixed. Um, and you can do that without coddling or, or catering to this broader idea that um, the whole system is is rotten at its core and that we can't trust the results of a, a twenty you know a presidential uh, election. Yeah, I mean, if, if you were designing the American electoral system all over again at this point, you would not have over ten thousand separate jurisdictions running our elections, and it's it's really a system that uh, functions because of volunteers who do the job maybe two days every other year. So that's not a perfect system. There will always be improvements and changes that need to be made, just like there are new cars with new features every year. Doesn't mean your old car doesn't work. And people need to keep that in mind. Um, one of the other things that you very effectively did in your survey, I thought, was segment the electorate into defenders, shifters, and inhibitors. And when you talk about the right voices and the right message, needs to be a little bit different for each of the groups you, you indicate in your report. Tell us a little bit about the differences between defenders, shifters, and inhibitors, and then what tactics and opportunities for talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're right. So, you know, we segmented the entire electorate into these three broad categories, democracy defenders, democracy shifters, and democracy inhibitors. We use a green, yellow, red coding system because um, some people are more visual as they think about these groups. Some are colorblind too. Right. So, you know, we have a name, we have colors, um, you know, but um, the, the real purpose here, the impetus for this was you know, for I think a lot of the infrastructure that has gone to trying to communicate about our elections, you know, there's sort of this tendency, I think, to preach to the choir um, inadvertently. You know, it's just if you're of a group, then you think about communicating as to others who are of that same group. Um, and that's really not what's needed here. I mean, what's needed is to communicate to those who 
do have some doubts about our elections or are confused or conflicted about what to believe and, and whom to trust. And so that was our impetus. And you know what we found is there's this defenders group, and those are democracy defenders, about 20% of the electorate. And those are your um, you know, highly politically informed, highly politically engaged, uh, well-educated um, you know, democracy believers. And they're not all from one side or the other, um, or index, you know, one side, but they're not the people that you need to really focus on convincing. They're the kind of people who are going to be most likely to show up as, as a poll worker. Um, you know, and the types of people you should engage to play roles in the system. Um, and, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you have our democracy, the democracy inhibitors, and that's the red group. And as the name suggests, these are people who are pretty openly um, hostile. I mean, they have deep-seated dissatisfaction. They have anger, just extreme anger towards the other side or, or even sometimes their own side. Um, they're, you know, contributing to division and they are have a high uh, likelihood of believing conspiracy theories. In many cases, they're far down the conspiratorial rabbit hole. Um, these are the most difficult to move, um, you know, but they are kind of important to still communicate to and try to neutralize because they're the most likely to provoke political violence or participate in, um, in harmful activity. Then there's this really large group in the middle of democracy shifters. They do span right to left. In the report, we wanted to you know, focus on not just to kind of look at it through a partisan lens, but we do actually have these groups broken out by right to left in, in other work that we've done. And these shifters are, you know, they have some doubts about our institutions and our elections. Um, they aren't totally closed off though to changing their mind. They don't just necessarily, you know, dislike or, or harbor negative feelings to people who have different views. Um, to experts, um, they feel guarded. They feel like there's, you know, they don't really know if there's media they can trust. Um, and so we really focus on in giving strategic guidance here, effective messaging that can focus on countering the misinformation to which they are susceptible. They are susceptible to it. Um, and also to, to build trust, you know, so that, that way they can build, start to rebuild their trust in, in institutions, you know, and the other side. I mean, I would also say, and this is more of a longer term play, as you try to um, really listen and hear what are some of the real concerns that people have, you know, not the people who are just going to, they're trying to stir trouble, but, you know, the majority of the country who's just kind of the exhausted majority that's these shifters. You, you really want to understand kind of how they think because their views are, are nuanced, but they're certainly not closed off. They want to trust institutions. They believe in America strongly. They haven't lost faith in democracy totally. And so they're really an important group to communicate to. And one of the points that, that you make is that um, there are different ways to reach different audiences. So let's let's talk about the shifters in the middle. What is the best way to actually reach them? I assume that goes to media outlets as well as types of media that you uh, that you use to talk to. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, this is a group that that does watch the news, but they're not the types that are going to be on every social media platform. I mean, they're as to generalize, they live busy lives. Um, they 
you can reach them through kind of the most popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, you know, really are, are high up on, on their list. Um, as part of this work, just by the way, we did a lot of study on what are the media sources that these groups most trust. Uh, we also broke it down by age. And so to generalize, you know, these are not the ones that are necessarily going to be on, you know, TikTok and watching multiple cable news, uh, cable news stations, you know, every single night. Um, but they are on popular social media platforms, or they're highly represented on them, um, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. Um, you know, the typical streaming platforms, YouTube, Netflix, et cetera. You know, the other, and, and you can reach them through, I mean, they're watching sports, um, you know, they're consuming pop culture. But the other really key thing here is, and this is um, harder to scale, but really important, is that in terms of whom they trust, it really is, they've, they've they distrust kind of national figures, political figures, um, people that they don't feel connected to, but they still do have a significant amount of trust in local experts and local authorities. And this is where, you know, of course, you know, you can see people like firefighters and teachers who are always kind of trusted figures and fortunately are still pretty broadly trusted in communities. But when but for those that are real experts on elections, you know, election officials still rank pretty highly among them. They're going to trust their personal networks, their neighbors, their, you know, those who are at their, their churches and in their community groups, um, you know, their faith communities most, but election officials still rank pretty high, as well as, you know, just if you are trying to do media or get other spokespeople, firefighters, you know, teachers, like those who are really pillars of the community um, and helping keep the community healthy and safe. And let's talk about that a little bit. So as you're looking at this problem of uh, disaffected voters or non-believing voters, um, is this a national campaign or a local campaign? In other words, since the 2020 election, the number of people who deny the results has not changed despite an onslaught from lots of groups doing work Lots of media enterprises calling out the big lie. It's not work. How do you design the program to actually go in and, and be more effective? Yeah. So it it needs to be a campaign. So th there is a role for a, a nationally organized effort just because there are certainly trends and key insights and messaging that transcends locality. But in terms of being able to feature, well, you know, localize messaging so that it is specific to, you know, let's just use Maricopa County, for example. Um, it's important that it's specific to Maricopa County and about Maricopa County elections, even if it's messaging that we know um, is effective across, you know, for countering the concerns about fraud nationally. So you might have specific messaging that we've identified, helps people, uh, feel like be less likely to feel that there was fraud in the election and that can be utilized everywhere but it really has to be localized when someone in Maricopa County sees it it needs to be local it needs to be um, related to their election and it needs to feature uh, officials and people that they will trust are their neighbors their friends their even more important experts that are based in their and rooted in their community so that's really important. I mean, this is something we learned. We did some work on, on the COVID vaccines. Um, there's a lot of overlap in terms of what we learned about that. 
um, especially coming in later into the process about what didn't work um, and then needed to be adjusted to work that can be applied here. You just really need to localize, 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 localize. Um, I will also note though that there is a um, divergence in you know, the trust metric when it comes to trusting you know, the overall results of a presidential election or elections broadly and one's local election. It's kind of similar to your, you know, you don't like Congress, but you like your congressman um, dynamic where people are more likely to say, oh, elections are broken. I don't trust them. I think there's problems over there, but oh, no, my, my trust my, my elections. You know, I, I trust the results from, from my county or my jurisdiction or my city. Um, and so there isn't as much of a trust problem, but, but there still is there still is one. And actually, I think you can use that trust um, that people have in their local elections to um, to start to you know bring awareness to the fact of how well elections are run, so that they start to have more uh, more trust writ large. Um, but getting back to the core of the question, you know, designing a campaign, there is a role for national insights, messaging you know, what we know about messengers and media channels that can be broadly applied, but then the actual execution and what people see uh, needs to be relatable. It needs to be localized. Um, it needs to feel kind of of, by, and for their communities. Yeah, I want to go back to what you were talking about, messengers. Um, very much uh, local as opposed to national for the most part. Um, Trusted sources mean people you know in your community rather than elected officials. But it also seems that different messages are more effective with different age groups as well. Yes, that's definitely true. And so as you're designing this campaign, I, I, I take it your advice is one size does not fit all, that you're providing a lot of data for how to talk to different age groups. Uh, I assume that there's a different strata on income and sort of general um, general circumstances. Yeah, I mean, that's really, really important. I mean, you know, I think as we know, things have been changing so fast that, you know, the generational divide where it might just be before that, you know, yes, of course, an, an 80-year-old's experience is different than, a, you know, maybe a 30-year-old. You now have um, generational kind of experiences and media consumption um, can be quite different, even for you know those that are 15, 15 years apart. So in our, in our report, you know we start to break this out by you know Gen Z, those who are eighteen to twenty five, millennials about twenty six to forty one, Gen X forty two to fifty seven, um, baby boomers, and then you know above. And we do see a lot of distinctions, you know, even kind of in adjacent generations um, in terms of their media consumption. I mean, this is kind of an obvious one and that like a Gen, Gen Z and younger millennials, um, they spend a lot of time and turn to, to TikTok is high up there where that doesn't even resonate for, for Gen X or, or baby boomers. Um, you know, you see a lot more of the younger generation being comfortable um, hearing about these things on social media and even discussing them Whereas, you know, those that are in, in uh, more older generations, that's that's not the case. Um, they are on Facebook. They are on, you know, Instagram. In terms of the messaging, um, there, there certainly are, you know, distinctions as well. And so what you're really underscoring is that 
not only is it a, not a you know a national campaign that needs to be localized, um, but you really need to have you know essentially different campaigns, sub campaigns within a broader campaign that are customized and and surgically targeted to different generations, um, as well as you know you mentioned kind of income. Um, so yes, income, education, age, and the other thing, the other dividing line. Um, you know, really is um, that we see is just the amount of the amount of media that people consume and and which sources has such a an impact on um, you know obviously on a culture, but also how people can can be moved. I also take from from your research. This may be overgeneralizing that broad based regular television ads. Are sort of missing the target. That this is much more, much more individualized than that. That you sort of have to go where people are living. Yeah. So I mean, look. I mean, broad-based television ads are really useful just because you can get a message out to a lot of people quickly, and they can amplify narratives. Um, but with this kind of thing, you know, they also can kind of have a backlash effect. I mean, people. Um, this feels is very local to people. It's personal. Um, they really distrust the media, you know, like media broadly. So big media, and that means ads on big media aren't going to be uh, as trustworthy as, as you say, the um, you know personalized networks, the local officials, um, you know, even you know social media because that's people's social networks. They're more likely to to trust trust that, and, and it's part of what makes it a bit challenging, right? You have to penetrate. It's it's a lot easier. It's obviously more complicated than this. You and I have been in lots of campaigns where you run television ads, but to simplify it, it's not as simple as just kind of placing a buy and it's, you know, plug and play and you go. It's much more complicated when you're trying to penetrate a web of people's personal networks, connections, community organizations, um, you know, their WhatsApp groups and their text chats and, you know, the things that they most pay attention to in today's noisy media environment. Yep. Really, really important point. Um, let's talk a little bit more about what you did in Arizona and Georgia and come back to something you said before about debunking misinformation as opposed as opposed to pre-bunking, which would be talking about it and telling a story beforehand. And you found that that debunking was was more effective. And so tell us why. Yeah, so thank you for asking about that. Um, so this was a really interesting finding that we couldn't have really expected until we did the research about the ways that you try to counter or mitigate mis misinformation, and I would say election misinformation in particular. Um, there was a lot of kind of predated, you know, political science and and other social science that predated, you know, this work where kind of the sense that. Um, fact-checking or debunking doesn't work. You know, fact-checking became kind of popular to do, um, you know, in the last couple of decades where you had like factcheck.org and you had, you know, news organizations trying to create these fact-checking sites. And, you know, generally they were seen to be a bit of a failed experiment, I would say, um, in terms of actually changing the minds of the people who needed the fact-check. So, um, so I think it was a bit surprising to us when we found we we ran some randomized control trial, you know, in field survey experiments where we tested 
reaction to um, real content that in Arizona's case, the Maricopa County Election Department, so the Maricopa County Recorder was putting out um, both to pre-bunk and to debunk um, the idea that you know, vote by mail was not secure and, you know, the way that vote by mail works and is tracked and processed in, in Maricopa County. Um, and in Georgia, we we did it on the statewide level. So the um, Secretary of State's office and content that they were putting out. And what we found is, so in Arizona, um, you know, we tested sort of a pre-bunking set of content and debunking. So pre-bunking is just trying to communicate straight up. You, you know that, you know, there's a um, disbelief, say, in vote by mail. And so it's trying to say this is something that's secure and verifiable and you kind know, of explain how it works. Um, that's pre-bunking. Debunking is actually presenting the myth. So being very clear about here's the myth in Maricopa, it's that Maricopa County's ballot duplication process allowed illegitimate ballots to be counted and say that's false and then present the facts. So it's more of a traditional fact check. And we found that when respondents were presented with this debunking versus pre-bunking approach, they were much more likely to be persuaded and thus to have more faith and confidence in the system and the fact that you know their vote was counted accurately and that the outcome was legitimate um, with the debunking approach. Um, in Georgia, we took what we learned in Arizona and we tested sort of two different ways of debunking, what we would call a low dose and a high dose. Low dose was just a shorter, you know, kind of message. Um, you know, often in politics, they say, if you're explaining, you're losing. And we certainly know that some media platforms, you know, now it's just become really popularized or part of the culture to just be very short and brief in your explanation. So we tested a low dose debunking and what we call a high dose. High dose was still just, you know, a couple paragraphs. We're not talking about someone needing to read a white paper um, or watch a longer form video. And we, and we found here that um, we, you actually see that the um, high dose, um, you know, the high dose strategy um, was most effective overall. So both debunking strategies were effective, but, but high dose was even, even more effective. And the reason we think this debunking strategy was effective for election misinformation in particular, and in these states in particular, um, first of all, it was the framing. I mean, they were from official departments that are pretty, still pretty trusted as you know nonpartisan institutions. Number one, well, with most of the electorate, but two, that this is an issue that is so salient. And there's been so much coverage of that among those democracy shifters, they really are just confused and seeking to understand for some of them the truth. Um, and so I, I think that's really our hypothesis here. You know, we're really excited to do a lot more of testing that builds on this, um, both you know, kind of in this next month, but also in the aftermath of 2022 to help election officials and, and those that support them um, be even more effective and prepared headed into 2024. Let's talk about um, election officials for, for whom both you and I have a great deal of respect and, and admiration for the job that they're doing. But what's the program that you would give? election officials to carry out in this last month before the election to um, give their voters more confidence in the system? Essentially, the program that, you know, we would give them, because um, there's election officials and then there's those that are kind of doing to work to try to 
you know, amplify and, and bolster um, election officials outside of them. But for election officials themselves, um, it would really be empowering, you know, training them um, in communications and effective um, media practices, because in many cases, they are going to be in the spotlight, or, or they potentially could be in the spotlight, I should say. We, we hope they won't be. But if there are any kind of issues and it's a very close election, um, they will be in the spotlight. And there's certainly a higher likelihood they'll be in the spotlight in these times than in, in past times. And so training them, um, providing talking points, both you know that are in line with these recommendations in this playbook, as well as updated and refreshed points um, as we get closer to election and, and certainly in the event of a, what I'd call a crisis where, um, you know, post-election you have a prolonged, you know, recount or, um, you know, set of lawsuits or, or other things that are creating a crisis like we saw in 2020. Um, definitely, um, you know, elevating, and there's some risk in this just because election officials are being targeted with death threats and other things, but elevating those who are willing um, you know, their voices, their faces, you know, their images, um, you know, not just kind of the top election official, but others within the department, um, you know, others in, in more local jurisdictions, you know, featuring them kind of in the voter education and outreach that goes out so that it is personalized. Um, people can attach, you know, that there's just kind of a local community member, someone they can relate to, um, who is, sharing you know the information that voters need to hear about how our elections are run and and why voters um, can trust them um and, you know it would also include just being very um you know and I would say that Maricopa County Stephen Richer and his team in Maricopa County do a great job about this is more communication is better so communicating through social media and you know many of the different channels as many as you know they're capable of doing, between Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and local media um, and any other networks that they're able to, um, the, the steps in the process. So when ballots go out um, and when they drop in various places, when they're coming in, um, that they're being counted, um, it was much transparency about that process um, that is, you know, they're reasonably able, able to do and, and is, um, doesn't cause greater risk the better so that voters are able to see that and understand and it's not so black boxy you know they really de demystify it for voters um you know some of this myth fact stuff so providing you know sets of guidance on this myth fact guidance about um you know vote by mail and how ballots are counted or if they have drop boxes how that works when voter vote ballots are going to be counted um you know the various audits that are already built into the system the counting, you know, all of the pieces and steps of the election process. So um, as we close out, let's just pull back a bit. This is an excellent study, but the question still comes down to how do you best put this into practice? So who is the driving force? What does the organization or the components of the organization look like? What are the action steps that need to be taken? Yeah, I mean, this is a really, really great question. Um, I would say that, um, you know, we certainly sort of do, do our best as an organization and working with other partners in, in the field, including ones, you know, you're involved with Ben to get this in the hands of as many election officials as we can to field calls and, and provide, um, you know, support to them. Um, 
as needed to, to train the trainers so that this, you know, these mess, this is distributed, this guidance is distributed prior to the election. And I think have done a reasonably good job, but the fact of the matter is, as you said, there's, there's 10,000, you know, plus jurisdictions. Um, and there's just more infrastructure that needs to be in place. I, I would say before 2024, um, the, you know, there's guidance, which we know that some of these election officials are heating and they're utilizing, um, but you really need more um, infrastructure on the ground, both within those departments or being able to work hand in glove with those departments on the ground so that they're able to execute and implement in, in real time. Um, and, you know, that is something that, you know, I, I certainly hope is built out as we, we had to to 2024. I mean, I, you know, as you know, we, we, you know, coming from presidential campaigns or those kinds of large scale organizations, I've long, if I could wave a magic wand, would say you would have, you know, almost a, a presidential election size, you know, infrastructure to just focus on um, the project of ensuring that voters have faith and confidence and, and you know, can trust our election outcomes. Um, and that would involve, you know, state based organizations. Um, county-based organizations, a whole, you know, communications apparatus and research and messaging and paid media and earned media and, um, and organizing and, and the like. And so um, there is some of that happening, of course, but it's um, it's not as organized. And so that is certainly what we're kind of focused on doing along with others as we head towards 2024 is how do you create, um, you know, first of all, start to focus on even the parts of the electorate that we've identified here, the shifters and the movable inhibitors, so that you're setting your targets on the on the right people. Um, you're you're trying to instill trust with those who don't trust, as opposed to preaching to the choir. Um, and that we are um, creating more coordination and providing more, you know, assets and resources to those that are already in positions to be trusted messengers on the ground. Um, and they already have constituencies and publics uh, that listen to them, that trust them, you know, and that they can reach. Mindy Finn, the CEO of Citizen Data and uh, the author of a recent report, American Democracy Roadmap, Playbook for Trusted Elections. Thanks so much for being with us. This is St. Sinners and Salvageables, and I'm Ben Ginsberg. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ben. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.